Good morning. I have a handout this morning. Uh, is there anyone that didn't receive a handout when they came in? If you raise your hand good and high, uh, one of the gentlemen will come by and help you. All right, there's one over here. Anybody else that needs a handout? There's one here. Anyone else on this side? You get the A plus, you get the A for getting all the handouts, very good, okay. One might be able to guess what is going to be the uh, focal application to my message this morning. It's going to be what? You've got it, you've got it. Reading the Bible through in a year. I can think of no better way to end my ministry than on focusing our attention on the importance of reading God's word. This is my last day as senior pastor uh, of the church, and uh, we are glad for Pastor Cruz, who will begin those responsibilities uh, tomorrow. This is my last day, but it's not my last sermon. I'm also preaching this evening. But I'm not going to be making personal comments this morning. I will have that opportunity on the 7th, and I will avail myself of that situation. For the last 40 years, every last Sunday of the month, my message is focused on reading through the Bible in a year. Now, there's nothing magical about reading through the Bible in a year, and I certainly don't want to give you the impression that by reading the Bible through in the year, that makes you that really dedicated super Christian or that that God is marking off the days in heaven that you are reading the Bible. That certainly is not what I want to communicate to you. But there is a great benefit to reading the entirety of God's word repeatedly. It is important to know the whole counsel of God. To gain a familiarity with the entire Bible. All too often, Christians tend to shy away from reading the Old Testament, other than perhaps Psalms and Proverbs. But for many, the Old Testament is just the white pages of their Bible. However, the informing theology of the Old Testament is extremely important to understanding the New Testament. The Old Testament is often alluded to, and yes, even quoted, in the New Testament. And the informing theology of the Old Testament is extremely important to applying the New Testament to our lives. That is the background that provides for us a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of the truths that are given to us in the New Testament. To me, going deeper in the Word of God is being able to connect the dots, as I like to refer to them, of Scripture. To connect the dots. That is, to see the relationship of the various portions of the Word of God. We want to understand the plan of God as opposed to the plans, plural, of God. We want to see the meta-narrative, as it's often referred to, the big story, the linear 
the beginning and the end of redemptive history, of what God is doing in this world. And it all fits together. But for so many Christians, it's fragmented. It's a Bible story here, and it's a Bible story there, and they know the Bible stories, but they don't get the big picture of ultimately what God is doing and how all of it fits together. And that happens through the regular, repeated reading and study of the entire scriptures and bringing them together in formation of what God wants to reveal to us. This morning, we're going to consider the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament by a very important character, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we will look at how Jesus drew upon the informing theology of the Old Testament to meet the temptation that he was facing in the wilderness. The reason I am, am <coughs> using handouts this morning is because I, I want you to be able to see clearly the relationship of Deuteronomy to Matthew in the accounts that are given to us. And so I have them laid out side by side as uh, we work through the handout. I have more than what is in the handout, but if you follow the handout, you'll, you'll be able to stay with me. But I want you to see the connection, for it is so valuable. What we want to understand is the reasons why Jesus quoted the portion of Scripture that he does. Why did Jesus quote Deuteronomy 8 when he was faced with this particular temptation in the wilderness? What does it say about the Scripture, and what does it say about Jesus? All too often, people just make the general application as they read through Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus met temptation by quoting Scripture. Almost as though Scripture is a, a magical charm, uh, kind of like the idea that, you know, the vampire, that if you hold up a cross, the, the vampire just kind of shrieks and, and moves away. Well, you know, some people almost get the impression that all you have to do is just recite a Bible verse and Satan will just quiver and, and leave. But what I want you to see is that the verse that Jesus quotes is germane to the temptation that he is facing. It is rich. And of course, he understands the richness of it. And I want us to understand the richness of the parallel of these two passages. So why did Jesus quote this particular verse? Why was it such a help to Jesus? And what does it teach us about the nature of temptation that he was facing? So the theme this morning is the lessons to be learned from the eight points of connection between Jesus' being tempted in the wilderness and the Israelites being tested in the wilderness. Eight points of contact in these two passages. 
The first point of connection between these two passages is the leading of God. In Matthew, we find that Jesus was being led by God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God was leading, directing Jesus to this particular location. In Deuteronomy, we learn that the Israelites were being led by God. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. You would remember that for these 40 years, God has led you. He led them with a cloudy pillar by day and a fiery pillar by night. He was directing their steps. We often refer to the Israelites as wandering in the wilderness. And the reason that we do is because they were going around in many ways in a circular fashion. They were, they were going it a way which seemed to be aimless for it wasn't leading them directly to the promised land because of their disobedience and their sin. But God was in fact leading them in their wandering. He was directing their paths. That they were at the place that they were by the direction of God. It wasn't just by happenstance that the Israelites ended up in the wilderness. God wanted them to be in the wilderness. It wasn't just happenstance that Jesus was in the wilderness. God wanted Jesus in the wilderness. And we need to understand that God is leading and directing our steps as well. That there is great comfort and encouragement and help in knowing that where I am in life is a result of God leading me. You see, the text is telling this for our benefit. It is revealed to us. It is a, an annotation to the account. Jesus was led by the Spirit. It's a part of the narration to help us understand what is going on here. Second, the second point of connection between these passages is the location in which they occurred. Jesus was led into the wilderness, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Israelites were also led into the wilderness, verse 18 of Exodus 13. But God led the people by the way of the wilderness through the Red Sea. The similarities of the place of temptation should not go unnoticed. There is a similarity. The scriptures teach us that there is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. In other words, there is no experience in life that is totally unique to yourself, which so often is a part of temptations that we face. We may look at life and say, no one has it as tough as I do. No one has ever had to go through what I am going through. And there, there is this sense 
of poor me because I am in this place that no one else could understand, no one else could relate to, no one else would have to put up with. Nobody has a husband like mine. Nobody has a wife like, or our children, or a job, or a boss. My life is just so much worse than anyone else's. They are in the same place. For there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. It is good to know that there are others that have walked the path that we walk. There are others who have the experience that we have experienced. And most importantly, that Jesus himself has walked the path that we walk and has experienced the experiences that we experience. The third point of connection between these two passages is the number 40. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And after fasting, verse 2, Matthew 4, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The Israelites were in the wilderness not for 40 days, but for 40 years. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Number four. The fourth point of connection between these passages is that the hunger was the hunger that was experienced. Now we get to the nitty-gritty. Now, now we start to see the, the things that are of greatest significance in the relationship of these two passages. And the first is that both were hungry. Jesus was hungry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would be hungry after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. But Jesus is not the only one that fasted 40 days. So did Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. But I don't know if anyone here has ever fasted for 40 days. You, you may have practiced fasting in your personal relationship with the Lord. I don't know. Maybe you fasted for a day or two or three or some fast for diet purposes. But for 40 days, he was hungry. He was hungry. He was hungry. And the second thing I want you to notice is that this hunger was a result of a spiritual decision that Jesus had made. He went to the wilderness to fast, to be alone with God, to be praying, to be seeking to have a, a more deep and intimate and personal relationship with his, his father. But he was hungry. He was hungry. I, I can't stress that enough. He was hungry. Secondly, the Israelites experienced hunger. Starting with Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. 
It's an interesting phrase. And he let you hunger. He wanted you to experience hunger. He brought you to that place so that you would be hungry. You would be hungry. Jesus knew what it was to be hungry. There are a lot of theological debates on almost any subject you can think of. And one of them is on the, for lack of a better word, the reality of Jesus' temptations, meaning were they real? Wasn't it just a cakewalk for Jesus to encounter anything that he encountered in life? And, you know, he is God after all, and so we know that God can't be tempted, so did these temptations really have any teeth to them, or were they uh, like a dog that only barks? Did Jesus really experience anything of significance? And the answer to that repeatedly in the scriptures is yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. In fact, I hope that I can demonstrate this morning that that he suffered more intensely than we suffer when tempted. Hebrews says that, he, that no one has resisted unto blood in striving against sin. Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat great drops of blood in going through the ordeal of facing the cross. And he prayed and asked God, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. But if not, I will do your will, O God. That was real. And it's also significant, for, for that was real obedience. That was real suffering for us. So yes, his temptations are real. He was hungry. Number five, the fifth point of connection between these two passages is the stated purpose or reason for God leading both Jesus and the Israelites into the wilderness. So they were led to the wilderness, each. But why? Well, first, God led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And now, here is the purpose clearly stated, to be tempted by the devil. That's why he was there. He was there for the, de- temp- for the devil to tempt him. 
Now that might seem incredibly strange to you as you read through and, 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 and you say, God led him into the wilderness for Satan to tempt him? And the answer is yes. And, and then you say, but, but doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't tempt anyone? James 1.13, that no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Operative word in that verse, he himself tempts no one. But he does bring people into situations in which the evil one is going to tempt them. All you have to do is read the book of Job and, and know the great book of this conflict that is going on behind the scenes between God and Satan in which God is in control. God does lead people into temptation. In fact, we are given a very, what has become famous prayer of Jesus when he teaches his disciples how to pray. When they ask him, Lord, how should we pray? He said this, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done thy, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. We are to be praying that God would not lead us into temptation. And the prayer itself that we would not be led into temptation demonstrates that it isn't needed in our lives. For let's go on and look at the connection. For we find, B, God led the Israelites in the wilderness to be tested by God, tempted by Satan, Jesus, tested by God, the Israelites, Deuteronomy 82. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. I think many of you are aware of it, but the Greek word for test and the Greek word for temptation is the same word. It's the exact same Greek word. The difference isn't found in the word and the difference isn't found in the situation as evidenced in our text. The, the situations are very, very similar. So it isn't that that the circumstances 
are going to be the issue of whether it's a test or a temptation. It isn't what we are facing in our life that distinguishes between a test and a temptation. So it isn't a matter of sitting here and, and analyzing what I'm going through and asking myself, is this a test of God or is this a temptation of the evil one? For the answer is yes. At one and the same time, the circumstances of life are a test by God and a temptation by the evil one. So I'm at sea. Test and temptation in Greek are the same word. God tests and Satan tempts. The difference between a temptation and a test is not the circumstances, as evidenced in our text. The difference between a test and a temptation is the desired outcome of Satan as opposed to the desired outcome by God. Satan wants us to sin in the particular circumstance, hence a temptation. He wants us to fall. He wants us to fail. He wants to do us spiritual harm. He wants to tear us down. He wants to destroy us. He wants to undo us. So Satan is trying to draw us away from God to our utter destruction. God, on the other hand, wants us to learn and profit from the particular circumstance, hence a test. He wants our spiritual good. He wants to build us up and establish us in our faith. Deuteronomy 8.16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you. Now notice these words, Deuteronomy 8.16, to do you good in the end. Very significant words. To do you good in the end. God brought them into wilderness. Yes, they were hungry. Yes, they were going through difficulties. Yes, it was a miserable situation that they were in. But the purpose was for their good. The desire of God was for their well-being. He was instructing them. He was teaching them. He was helping them to understand this great truth that we ultimately are going to look at, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He wanted to help them. That's not what Satan wants. He doesn't want the good. He wants the evil. Six. The sixth point of connection between these two passages is the issue of humility. God is testing the Israelites by seeking to develop humility within them in keeping God's will. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years that he might humble you Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. That he might humble you. They were there for the very purpose of being humbled. And God was 
producing within this a humbleness to, to recognize their insufficiency, to, to recognize their need of dependence upon God, to realize that they couldn't provide for themselves. Only God could provide for them. And to stop their grumbling and complaining and rather look to a, an all-sufficient God who is watching over them and protecting them and providing for them even in a wilderness where there was no food, where there was no water, but God would feed them day by day. And he did because he gave them manna. To teach them that God can do what they cannot do. And they must learn to trust and serve God. Jesus, on the other hand, is humble, is submissive to the will of the Father. But he is in the wilderness. For Satan to tempt, for Satan to try to disrupt this humility, and for Jesus, of course, to resist them temptation. Now, notice what the temptation is in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, excuse me, Satan is tempting Jesus to forsake his humility and to show forth arrogance and to violate God's will. Now hear this Case study in informing theology is very, very helpful. You see how the Old Testament sheds light on the new. That we, we find out what's going on here is an issue of humility. An issue of humility. So often people read this verse and they think that what the temptation is, is for Jesus to prove that he is God. If you are the son of God then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Prove that you are the Son of God. That's not what it is. That's not the temptation. It would not have been anything sinful for him to prove that he was the Son of God. He's proven it time and time again in the New Testament. The temptation is, Jesus, you're hungry. Jesus, you're really hungry. You know, Jesus, if you're God, you can turn these stones into bread. There's no reason for you to be hungry. Jesus, why in the world would you want to be hungry? Jesus, if you're the son of God, 
it's even inappropriate for you to be hungry. You can meet all your needs. Just turn the bread into stone. He is tempting Jesus not to live as a man, but to live as God. But he came into the world not to live as God. He came into this world to live as a man and to identify fully and completely with humanity. Listen to some passages. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, keep that word in mind, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, who though he was in the form of God, I mean he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he didn't hold on to the grandeur of deity with a, with a closed fist that wouldn't let it go. But as God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Well, there's our word again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He would do what God would have him to do. He would humble himself under the will of the Father. To the point of death, even death of a cross. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under law, so we might receive the adoptions of, of sons. Hebrews 10, 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. The whole purpose of his coming was to be a man. To fully identify with man, to live as man, to be a man, to die as a man, and to rise as a man from the dead by the power of God. So here, the informing theology of God's humbling them is very instructive to understand the nature of the temptation that Jesus is facing. You see, the Israelites thought that they deserved better from God. They grumbled and complained because they thought God was failing them. They were not content in the wilderness, even though he was providing the manna, even though he was watching over them, but they weren't content with what God had provided. They thought they deserved better than this. Satan is saying to Jesus, certainly you deserve better than this. If you're the son of God, cast these, turn these stones into bread. You deserve that. And much, much more, Jesus. 
Jesus was tempted to use his powers to meet his own needs in a way that violated his role in becoming a man. No other human being would be able to turn stones into bread to meet his own needs, and therefore, neither should he. That's the point. No other man could have done this. Therefore, he should not do it, for he was to live as a man. So Jesus' response is, man shall not live by bread alone. Man is to live by the word of God, the will of God. I will live as a man. I will live as a man. Now, in this, Jesus was tempted in a way that was even greater than that which was faced by the Israelites. For their temptation was to grumble and complain. It was not to be satisfied with the position that they were in, but they were not in a place in which they could do anything about it. They could be unhappy, but they couldn't come up with a sinful way to fulfill that desire. They couldn't turn stones into bread. But Jesus could. That's why I say he had a greater, more intense temptation than you and I will ever face. For he did not have the limits that we have. The reality is that many times if we had the power, we would be more sinful than what we really are. If we had the ability to fulfill our lusts at our own whim, I I tremble to think of how I might live. that I could do whatever I wanted to do. Jesus could. He was given that freedom of the Father. But he humbled himself. He said, not my will, O God, but yours. All too often, We are tempted to to be like God. The temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden was over food again, but food for a different reason. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. You can decide for yourself how to live. You can determine what is good and what is wrong. You have this opportunity to be like God, and that's what he's trying to keep you from. 
He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have that kind of power. But you can take it. You can reject God's authority. You can live the way that you choose to live. You don't have to follow that command that says you shall not eat of that tree or you'll die. You won't die. God knows you won't die. You can be like God. In Isaiah chapter 14, there is a description of Satan's fall. And Satan says in Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That was what the fall was all about for Satan. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be in the place of God. He wanted to determine life for himself and for others. And it's the age-old battle of what sin is ultimately of people wanting to determine for themselves how I am going to live. It is my body. I can do with it what I want. Who can tell me how to live? You can choose. I can choose. It's within our right, and it's in our authority. And unbelievably, who is God to tell me how to live? That's the temptation. That's the sin. And the incredible grace and goodness of God is that he is willing to live like a man in order to save us from our desire to live like him. He took on our body. He took on our limitations. He gave up his glory in order to come down and to identify with us so that he who is rich became poor so that we who are be poor could be rich. You know, he gave us the one way to actually achieve what is because of us a sinful desire and turns it into a good desire, and that is he gives us the ability to be like God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He takes us where he is and showers us with the blessings that he enjoys. It's incredible. It's incredible. So we, we find out that the, the scriptures are so rich in giving us this fuller, deeper, richer understanding of his word. Number seven, the seventh point of connection between these two passages is upon the word of God. In Matthew, Jesus refers to God's word, but he answered, it is written. It is written. In Deuteronomy, Moses refers to God's command. The whole commandment that I've commanded you today, you shall be careful to do. Yes, there is this general truth that the word of God is central to meeting temptation. But I would go further and say that in meeting temptation, we need to know the word 
of God. We need to know how to live. We need to know how to respond. And we need to know why. All of these things Jesus knew. Far better than anything that I can explain to you this morning. But Jesus realized in the wilderness that man shall not live by bread alone. What God wanted to teach the Israelites, Jesus already knew. And of course, did not give in to the temptation, even though it was great, because he would not violate the will of his Father. We need to know the whole counsel of God so that we can meet every situation that we encounter. Thus, we need to be reading and reading the entire Bible through with regularity. The eighth point of connection between these two passages is the stated truth that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus states the truth of God as revealed in the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man will not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there it is for you in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The analogy is between physical bread and the word of God, which is the spiritual bread. And we find out that though the physical bread is necessary, man does not live by bread alone, you need physical food. But what you need more is spiritual food. What you need more is the word of God. That is more important. That is more necessary. How necessary is it? I mentioned to you Job, that great Old Testament character who was a righteous individual, more righteous than anyone else on the face of the earth at that time. Satan was tempting him. And Job has many responses. Listen to this one. Job says in Job chapter 23, verse 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have prized God's word more than my necessary food. Not just food in general. But Job says, God's word is more important to me than the food I need to live on. That's a higher priority. So as we enter this new year and we are setting our priorities and making resolutions and all these things, ask yourself why you wouldn't make reading the Bible through in a year a priority in your life. What would be more important? What could, by any means, be of such great importance or significance that you don't have time for that? You're too busy for that. 
You have so many other responsibilities, so many other duties. Not to mention having to provide for yourself and your family and your work. You see, there's a tremendous temptation that says, I need to provide for myself. I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. I have so many important, significant things to do. I can't let them undone to be spending time in God's word. As though we are able to control our own lives, as though we are able to provide for us. You know, we could be struck dead tomorrow. We could be in an automobile accident. We could be paralyzed. That's why Jesus says, pray for your daily food. But we aren't content with our daily food. We want food for the next 30 years. We want to see how God is going to provide for us till the day we die. We want the roadmap of assurance that I've got enough money in the bank that I can meet almost any significance. I've got to have enough money that I can survive a flood for my house. I have to have enough money that I can survive a layoff. I have to have enough money that I can do this and I can do that. I have to have enough bread. I don't have enough bread. Well, I have enough for today, but Man, I don't know about 10 years from now. I don't know about when the kids are growing. I don't know how this six-month-old baby is going to go to college. And I better start a college fund. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against college funds. But I'm against the idea that provision is all in our lap. Learning that man does not live by bread alone is an understanding of the faithfulness and the goodness of God and the deceitful nature of the evil one who wants to draw us away from him by self-reliance and independence and even rebellion. But it's God's word that going to hold our sinful hearts in check. It is God's word that is going to cleanse us, that's going to renew us, that's going to remind us that man does not live by bread alone. It's God's word that teaches us that you can't serve God and mammon, or else you will hate the one and despise the other, or you'll hold to the one, not the other. We need God's word. This morning, we saw a, an example of how Jesus met a temptation by opening the word of God. Not just any portion of scripture, but a relevant portion of scripture that spoke to his situation. I hope this morning you also saw how more rich and deep the Bible comes as you connect the dots. As you bring the stories together, 
and how you realize how relevant the Word of God is. I don't use the word hate very often, but there is a phrase that I hate, and that's when people talk about making the Bible relevant. You don't make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. The Bible speaks to us today. The Bible speaks to us where we are. The Bible speaks in our circumstances, whatever they may be. The answer, the hope, the comfort, the direction, the victory is found in the Word of God. We must give ourselves to His Word so that we can resist temptation, so we can enjoy the fruit and blessedness of walking with our God so we might know him more intimately, richly, deeply. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word, and I ask that you would help us to know it, to believe it, to trust it. Open our eyes to your, your truth. And this morning, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to come into this world and to live a humble life, to live as a man and refused the temptation of not to live as a man. Oh, Lord, help us to live like men. Help us to understand our weakness Help us to understand our frailty. Lord, help us to learn we cannot provide for ourselves. We are not sufficient. Lord, teach us the joy of living under your mastery. To acknowledge your sovereignty, your kingship. May we thank you for it. May we welcome it. Oh God, rule over us for we need you, and we humbly implore and give ourselves to you to do with you us as you desire, for your desire is good. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.